Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. Welcome to Missed Apex Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Spanners Ready. I'm joined by Matt Two Rumpets for this week's edition of Missed Apex Podcast, where we will feature Bradley Philpot Masterclass and some F1 news, Matt. Yes, it's going to be everything I need to beat you thoroughly at iRacing. Ah, uh, yeah, of course. You're involved in this week's iRacing. Unfortunately, that race will happen just before this episode is released. So you've already missed it, unfortunately, but look out for that video. I'm sure it will be epic because Tony Thunderbeast isn't here to take out Bradley Philpot from the lead. So hopefully, uh, Matt, you can take over that mantle. As soon as, as soon as I get the PayPal notification, consider it done. So, Matt, in the previous Bradley Philpot masterclasses, you'd actually never done any karting. You came over to the UK to do a Missed Apex podcast event. How did you find it? Have you got the bug now? Oh, yeah. I mean, look, if I could do that every weekend, I absolutely positively would because I like to race and it's fun and I really enjoyed it thoroughly. But it's tragically difficult to do on a regular basis from New York City if you have anything that might technically be described as a life. That sounds like excuses. And what was required was results. What is required of me is to tell everybody that we are an independent podcast produced in the podcasting shed with the kind permissions of our better halves. We aim to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute. We might be wrong, but we're first. We also have lurking in the background Autosports. Chris Stevens, how's it going, Chris? It's going great. I'm about to go to the airport in about four and a half hours uh, off to Marrakesh for the weekend. Wow. Sounds like a humble brag or a boring story. I can't uh, quite decide which one. But here he is, the man of the moment, the original Missed Apex driver, driver zero, Bradley Philpott. How's it going, Bradley? Well, it hasn't been going brilliantly, but uh, it's all better now. I'm good now that I'm here with you guys. Everything's fixed now that you're in the warm bosom of Missed Apex podcast. Exactly. In my cold, cold garage. Now, Brad, you seem to have 
a limitless patience, especially when it comes to talking to us and talking to me about driving. Uh, it's been about, what, two years or so of you observing me from that first karting session in Aylesbury, uh, where you managed to take a second off me just by, you know, telling me really ridiculous things by like going, hey, why not take the shortest possible route from that last corner to the next corner? But, um, you know, we, we're constantly talking about driving. Have I, have I improved? You have definitely improved. I'd go as far as to say uh, I've been surprised at how much you've improved. The only blot on your copybook is that Chris was quicker than you when you guys went to Alex Brundle's simulator event. Um, so I'm, that's my only concern, but aside from that, you've actually impressed me, particularly with your iRacing uh, practice result I saw last night. Yeah. Now let's bear in mind that we're doing a Charlotte, uh, oval with an infield course. So at least half that track is oval. I'm pretty good at just keeping it in a straight line. Okay. I mean, there are, there are some corners. It's actually quite a technical track. So hopefully some of what we talk about tonight will help you when we race there later in the week. So, Matt, I kind of owe you a bit of an apology because I've kind of dismissed all you American uh, American sports, motorsports fans when you've been talking about your ovals. You go, wow, it's just driving in a straight line. But actually, when we've been doing the practice and there's been lots of cars side by side, it's a fascinatingly tactical uh, style of racing. Yeah, it is. And once you begin to get on top of it a little bit, as with any motorsport, you can just get sucked into the narrative. Um, and... The way they use air and aerodynamics is entirely different to Formula One. So it's, it, it is a different thing, a different beast. So because we've got this infield road section that goes out onto the oval, I know, for example, as long as I hang on within a second of that guy, I'm going to have a full uh, go around the oval to just sit in his slipstream and, and catch all the way up to him. And there's lots of situations as well where you go, well, actually, I've got the slipstream but I don't want to overtake here because, you know, it's almost like waiting for the DRS. Um, you know, before you get onto the oval section, you're thinking, oh, actually, I could I could do with being in third place uh, before we go there. It's true. You have to think far, far ahead in order to um, in order to advance tactically in the race. Let's get on to um, well, I like to say it's Bradley Philpott's masterclass. Really, I'm just using it for my own selfish reasons. So I think, Brad, I think there's three kind of aims, if you like, of what we're trying to do here. We're trying to go through the basics because I think there's a lot of people who just watch it, maybe watch it just for the crashes uh, or just watch it just for the style of it or because they like hearing loud cars. Um, You would be surprised, I think, Brad, with the things you think are simple that people either don't know or they just don't actively think about. Yeah, and and you've really highlighted that to me because we've had some conversations even in the recent past where – I've maybe not necessarily just used spanners, so I won't single you out, but where someone in our group has said something <laughs> along the lines of, yeah, but you know, why did the left front tire lock? And I've just sat there thinking, are they being, are they actually asking that or are they just being silly? Um, so yeah, I agree. I'm sure there are things that I, uh, that I just take for granted that people just understand. So hopefully, um, we will get everybody that's listening to this today uh, onto more of a level playing field in understanding this particular topic tonight. But it's not just that, say, we didn't know it. It's just because, you know, during the day, we're thinking about turning spanners, about accounting, about selling clothes. Uh, a great example we had recently was where I was just like, hey, uh, a prototype LMP cars, front wheel drive or rear wheel drive. Now, if I'd have had to have guessed at the time, I might have said, uh, probably rear wheel drive but I'd not thought about it. But to you, that was disgusting that I didn't know that. Yeah, you're right. I'm really sorry. I shouldn't have been so... I wasn't trying to be mean, but 
in my world, that's just, that's like knowing when you leave your house, you know, which side of the house is my garage? You know, it's just like the, it's just a, no- sorry, I was just thinking of a, a very, um, a very well, easily obvious example, because <laughs> I'm sat in a garage. Um, but, but yeah, I, 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 my aim here with these masterclasses is to, is to fill, fill people in with these things that people in the driving world just take for granted. So let's, let's bring everyone up to speed. Good. So yeah, so there's the basics, but there's also what I personally can do as a carter when we do our events and, uh, you know, when I just go out and race a random session and as a sim driver as well. Uh, but also we want to understand as viewers what the experts are doing. So when things happen on track, it's nice if we can relate that. In tennis, you know, it's much more obvious. He hit it out. That's why he made a mistake or he slipped. That's why he made a mistake. We can't always see the magic going on in the car. Yeah, that's actually a really good point because, you know, the key things that are making the difference are not only are they very subtle, small differences, but they're wrapped within a cockpit that, you you know, you're never going to have a pedal cam to yeah. look at exactly how much pressure someone's putting on any given pedal. So you're right. Okay, so let's let Chris have his moment of glory. Chris, you were, you were rubbish at the karting, I think that's fair to say, uh, but you were spectacular in the sim. So what, what made a difference to you? when we went into this actually admittedly incredibly realistic sim um uh, the name of the company is escaping me but i'm sure you'll remind me chris um it was it, we was we were actually sitting in the body of an old touring car with this big projection filling the entire view through the windscreen and the side mirrors uh, and in that environment you suddenly came to life yeah it was when we went to gts racing simulations in uh, uxbridge that's and the one the, the the screen it was a full you know 180 degree enclosure and that that chassis was actually a, a British touring car. I think it was a Vauxhall that Alex actually tested um, at one point. I forget um, the specific um, name of the chassis, but um, yeah, a, a really incredible experience. I, I think uh, you had the same issue that I have when I'm karting, um, which is I have no confidence in a go-kart. I, I don't trust them. Uh, and I think you didn't quite trust the car that, that we were driving because uh, the first thing Alex said to me when I sat down after you did your run was, if you have more confidence in the high-speed corners, you'll absolutely smash him. It's To me, it was like Polar Express, where it was so realistic. Uh, you've not seen Polar Express, where it's kind of, it's so realistic, but not quite. There was like an uncanny valley kind of thing going on. Uh, but let's start with uh, with you, Brad. I think one of the most important things as an F1 podcast is how we perceive what's going on on track. Now, I have heard you complaining about the graphics and the mismatch in the F1 live feed between the the graphics and the sound. But I never appreciated it until I tried to start taking some of the sim driving seriously. I know that's something that you've been kind of screaming at us for. Yeah, and it wasn't just me. I think Kyle Power actually was really, um, really hot on this. And I hadn't realized he'd noticed the same thing. But yeah, for, for a while now, I've noticed that during some of the onboards in Formula One, when you watch the onboard camera, it's obvious that the sound isn't synced with the picture. It's, you know, significantly out to the point where you can hear the car change gear and the per- the driver's finger isn't clicking the paddle or vice versa. He he is clicking the paddle, but it's not changing gear. But really the most obvious ones for me are when they break, but the engine is, the engine note's still rising. You know, you can, there's these things that in my mind are connected. You know, deceleration is connected with the engine note dropping and obviously downshift. And, and that wasn't happening. There was just this little disconnect. And what it made it look like was that some drivers, I think I was watching Hamilton around Monaco, it made it look like 
he was carrying way more speed into the corners than he actually was because it sounded like he was flat out like past some of the apexes, which which he wasn't. It was uh, so anyway. I don't know why this is. I think you came up with a bit of a suggestion of why this might be the case. Well, no, not why they do it, but just how it changed the perception of what was going on on track with me. So for a few seasons now, when I've been trying to get faster in a cart and get faster in a sim, I've always felt like you know don't get greedy into the corner. And then, you know, especially with a go-kart and MX-5s, there's a lot of times, and we'll talk about this later, where you are trying to be accelerating through the apex, having already sorted out your speed beforehand. And I had this perception that in an F1 car, you got all the way past the apex still braking, and you were braking almost all the way to the exit point as you were applying the steering lock and then getting on the power, which seemed so counterintuitive and weird to me. But if you if you watch the onboards, that's what it looks like on some of the tight corners, that they're going so, so deep breaking almost to the exit point and then getting the power on it's just weird and that's because you've got this kind of one second or so where actually they're not doing what it sounds like they're yeah. doing so we thought maybe it's because of some of the fancy new halo um, that, right. that was it. maybe it... this is why maybe they're running it through a third party piece of software and that's causing uh, a delay you're, you're reminding me of this conversation now yes it only comes up when they've got the halo graphics which show the increasing red and green lines to indicate the pedal application and perhaps yeah when it's going through whatever software that is it's delaying the sound or, or vice versa but it's interesting because it just means that guys on the onboard you're not really seeing the magic of what's going on uh, it's a weird one but okay so uh, the chat room has said, look at him, look, you can even see his steering wheel in the foreground. You are sat in a simulator. Yes, he's turning his wheel to demonstrate it in your garage. Now, I'll tell you, this rig that you've got there is better than a lot of, you know, sim venues that you will go out to. And you have, I, I assume, managed to blag to your missus that this is a piece of training equipment and not a video game toy. I've tried that. She absolutely doesn't believe it. Um, it's still... She's very good at letting me come out here and do the occasional race or training session. Um, but I'm pretty sure she still probably sees this as a toy. So a big boy's toy in the garage. Now, Matt has been in that simulator. Chris, I don't think you have, have you? No, I haven't had the honor of Bradley's <laughs> sim specific masterclass. I'll you have, have recently. Yeah, I have recently. And what I was going to say is your the feel of your sim is much more uh, like the Uxbridge uh, simulator that we were in, as in really heavy steering, really heavy braking, than say your average G29 or what I was using recently, Fanatec CSR sim wheel. Like you've set it up with very heavy steering, very heavy braking, so that you can get good feel. Yeah, and and that's something we were going to definitely talk about um, this evening because it's quite a contrast to the pedals that I attempted to use that you were previously using, um, and I think you were going to use the example of trying the new pedals that I've lent you. Yeah, so let's start with that. So Brad, um, he's like my karting dad. I get his handoffs uh, whenever he's done with them. But yeah, he delivered these, these great set of pedals. I don't know what they're called, but they, they feel proper chunky. And you've actually got a rubber stopper behind the brake pedal to stop it traveling so much. So when you press on it, it feels kind of like you're pressing against a brick wall. And the first time I pressed that brake pedal, because I'm sat here on an office swivel chair, instead of applying any braking force... I registered just a little blip of braking force, but mostly I just flew backwards. A huge contrast to a normal kind of, I guess, video game pedals where the thing travels all the way to the floor and very different from cart pedals where it's kind of binary. So why on earth have you got pedals that are so stiff that when I press them, I go backwards instead of stopping my computer game car? 
Well, Spanos, that's a very good and not at all orchestrated question. Um, so this is something that's, that's really common. You'll hear uh, a lot about how hard the pedals are in a Formula One car, um, how many kilos of force drivers are having to put through the brake pedal. It's quite a common thing that's, that's talked about on the commentary. And quite simply, the reason that uh, a racing car brake pedal is as firm as it is, it's as stiff as it is, is because humans are better at judging and then replicating how much pressure they apply to something than they are at how far they're moving something. So quite simply, if you were to give someone a squishy um, brake pedal with lots of travel and ask them to move it to a certain position and then do that over and over again, and then you measured how far they pressed it, they wouldn't be anything like as accurate as they would be if you gave them a really firm pedal that didn't move very much and really resisted their pressure. And, uh, they'd be able to much more accurately replicate that same amount of hard pressure they were applying. I've had um, a loose experience of this in a, in a simulator at the Autosport show a few years ago where it was very much an F1 sim. It even had kind of pressure pads in the harnesses to try and replicate the feeling of, of G-force. But uh, I tr- tried as I might on that brake pedal. I was barely, you know, pressing the thing. I, maybe it was even using 50% of the actual um, braking power. And uh, I, I stupidly was u- using the pressure from my ankle, where I, whereas I believe you're actually supposed to use it kind of your whole leg to, to stamp on there. Is that right, Brad? Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, kind of depending on how hard the pedal is. But then this is one of those things that you will have struggled with that because it's not something you're used to. But ultimately, once you get good with that, once you get used to that system, you'll be better than you ever could have been with a squishy kind of pedal. So it's the same in, you know, it's the same in most race cars, to be honest. Certainly a lot of the cars that I used to instruct in uh, back when I used to work at Palmer Sport, things like the JPLM, they had extremely stiff brake pedals. And I would spend all day long telling people to brake harder. And when they said to you, I am braking harder, you could then demonstrate on your pedals, which were attached to theirs. No, look, this is how how far you've got to make that pedal move with this much heavy pressure uh, and you could kind of demonstrate and then most people were kind of only getting to about 20 percent of the amount of pressure they should be using but once you're used to it you will be better you'll be more consistent with it royal waters in the chat room says stop all of this it makes me want to buy a new gaming set for racing try having philpot in your ear all the time uh, i am constantly having to fight the battle because i am a 38 year old dad and I feel like I shouldn't be wasting money on toys when the kids are going hungry. No one tell the government that my kids are going hungry. Trumpets. We did have an earlier question from the chat room. Uh, Mirror 303, if I would like to know how one recovers emotionally from wrecking one's Porsche Cayman. I'm not quite oh, sure what that's referring to. I, I think he means the Porsche Cayman you wrecked. I've never wrecked a Porsche. No, you Cayman. hit, no, you hit a Porsche. Porsche. I assume oh, he yeah. I mean, I've hit a Porsche. But it wasn't a Cayman. Um, I, hit a, I hit a 911 GT3 last year, although he did deviate from the lane system. So that can be um, that can be discussed another time. I have to say that the chat room are very pleased. Mark Greenhouse says, wow, I t- totally learned something just then. See, and I bet, Brad, that you would have thought that all that stuff was super obvious. Uh, Usman Salim says, Philpot equals wisdom you can join the live chat room by going to youtube and searching for missed apex podcast why not click subscribe there as well hello to jan who says spanners first time joining the live stream as well now he answered what i say often which is i say come and dm me anytime on facebook by searching spanners ready or on twitter by uh, also searching spanners ready always happy to chat to people all right philpot 
let's talk about your rig because yours isn't actually a spring of any kind. There's zero travel. You've actually just got a pressure pad. Yeah, so I've got something. Now, I'm not going to get too technical because I'm certainly not an expert on on how the electronics work, but I've got something called a load cell, which um, basically more accurately represents how a, a hydraulic uh, real-life brake pedal would apply the force to the discs through the pads. Um, so rather than having a really stiff spring or a rubber block like the pedals that I, I donated to you, um, this has a very firm pedal with a, a small amount of travel that really does feel just like a lot of race car brakes that I've, I've used. But it really allows me to, to accurately brake and trail the brakes into various corners um, when I'm using the sim. And, and I've seen an instant um, increase or improvement in my, uh, my consistency and, and a small improvement in my, my best lap times as well. Um, in things like single seaters where it's really important to have that firm brake pedal but one thing we haven't really spoken about spanners is is why you need to be accurate or why it's necessarily such a good thing to to be able to judge that pressure accurately yeah and we will get into the mechanics of going into a corner we are of course covering some f1 news today you can always keep up with us as well by following at missed apex f1 uh, but brad would you say then that because I know you go online and you probably race in all the top splits of the iRacing categories and stuff like that, your big show-off. Um, you are saying that you can sit and buy kit that makes you faster, somebody who knows how to drive a car as probably about as well as it can be driven. Should I feel disheartened in my shed and my clamping things off to onto the desk? Am I, am I really missing out? What sort of performance are we talking about between, you know, pedals that travel a lot and my Argos set of um, of steering wheels? So I think the first thing to say is the, the kind of kit you've got there uh, in your shed is not, apart from the frame, because I know you don't have a, a sim frame, but the wheel and pedals you're using are exactly the same as what I was using up until about six months ago. Um, and in fact, the pedals are what I was using about two weeks ago. So um, they're certainly very good for, um, how do I put this, for someone of your level, um, and I'm, you're far too kind to me, um, flattering about what splits I'm in. I'm not actually that good. Uh, I'm still a kind of novice when it comes to something like eye racing. Um, but, uh, I get to knock about in some of the half decent races occasionally. Um, but yes, you're right. You can buy kit that, that makes you better. But the way I look at it is this, I've grown up racing real stuff that I've done. Obviously simulators and computer games weren't, I'm quite old now. They weren't as good as they are now as I've as I've gone through my formative years. So the majority of my experience that I rely on when I when I drive in real life and on the sim comes from learning in real life. So the the more accurately I can get my little pod here to rep, represent real life, the more accurately, uh, the more naturally I can then drive, and then I just seem to get faster. And I had a real good example today actually in in the series I'm racing in online they've repeated the same track as they went to at one point last year. And I am now miles faster than I was last year. And I'm not redriving really it any differently. It's just my kit is allowing me to express how I want to drive a little bit more easily. Uh, but I'm still not, you know, I'm still not the, the fastest out there in iRacing for sure. And that is, you know, that's a sim. So that is, that's not what you grew up in. We take for granted, to be fair, don't we, Matt? We take for granted that we've just got Bradley Philpott in our ear. He's going to natter away to us. He's going to give us advice. I mean, we forget this bloke's like a actual racing car driver. 
I know it's very intimidating, especially when he invites you over, sticks you in that thing, and then just kind of wanders around and peers at you occasionally. <laughs> With that uh, thing. Now you you came up through the system as as many sort of kids do, trying to get as far as you can. But you're not a fancy billionaire. Uh, but you've certainly driven uh, single seaters that are very fast, and you are racing in a competitive series now. Go on, tell us a little bit about it, Brad. Give us a bit of a, uh, a, a potted history of Philpot. Yeah, okay. So um, so I raced uh, a little bit of indoor karting uh, when I was kind of eight nine years old, just testing the waters. Um, I had family members who were interested in motorsport and were involved in motorsport in kind of low level ways, making clothing and that kind of thing. Um, and then I was fortunate to be bought uh, a cadet go-kart. So it was known as a coma cadet. So we didn't know how to run it. I had no idea how you're supposed to set it up, but <laughs> I had a lovely little cadet car and a nice race suit when I was kind of 10 years old. Coveralls. Um, They're raced coveralls. that until, um, until I was 12 and you know just at kind of club level I wasn't doing national championships we were never we were running out of a small trailer it's the same old story that you hear a lot of the time um, and when we got to the next kind of step we couldn't afford to continue so we basically just stopped I got to the the point where I'd move into senior karting and I would just stopped um, and I then basically just did some indoor karting sporadically whilst I was an early teen until the point where I could get a part-time job and then pay for myself to do a bit more. And then until the point where egg were offering me a loan and I then took out a nice big 10,000 pound loan, um, because it was tempting and bought myself a brand new go-kart again and all the kit to go with it. Um, and began karting again. I was, this was only really for about one or two years. And then when I was 18, I, by by this point, all the money had gone. Yeah, way, I was as you say, can imagine, that, that an eighteen-year-old can spend thousands of pounds um, quite easily. So we won't go into how long that took to pay back. Um, but I'm glad I did it because um, it forced me to go and get a proper job to to pay it off and all that kind of thing. Anyway, and then um, and then I entered the Toyota MR2 Challenge in 2007, um, and I won. It wasn't really an official championship. It was more of a, a kind of trophy because they didn't register it as a championship. But anyway, I won. I won the chat. I had the most points, um, and then got a job at Palmer Sport. That was really the key for me. Working them for over a decade at really the world's premier driving experience. Where- I, I was going to say that's that's no small deal. That is that's a big deal. And you are probably too modest to say it, but you were one of the top rated instructors there. Without wanting to blow my own trumpet too much, I think over my period there, I definitely had the highest guest score. All, all the guests had to score you based on how well they thought you instructed them. And obviously, not that they really know what they're talking about, but but if they like you, they score you well. I think I had the, the highest average score over, certainly over a 10-year period, um, and got to instruct lots of people like royalty and all that kind of thing. But anyway, the key thing is that I was out in a race car every single day, all different types, front-wheel drive, rear-wheel drive, um, never four-wheel drive. Um but on sticky slicks, lots of downforce occasionally. And that then brought other opportunities um, because our track was run by Motorsport Vision, who run the majority of the tracks in the UK. Um, I got to know people like Jonathan Palmer um, or Jolien's dad and you know all the various other people who were kind of going through similar um, young race careers and you know always getting to compare yourself to them, that kind of thing. Um, and through that, I... I was afforded the opportunity to to do um, the test driving for British Formula 3 where Motorsport Vision um, took that over in, what year would they have done? Oh God, I I can't remember. A few years ago now. But anyway, I got to drive the Formula 4 car. And then did a Peugeot competition. God, we're just doing my whole career, aren't we? And then uh, won a scholarship um, to race for Peugeot. 
um, finished on the podium in the Nürburgring 24 hours, won the race of champions factor thing, blah, 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 blah all the way to now won the VLN um, SP2T championship. Well, tell you this what, supposed to be about me. I'm no, it is about, about you. It is about you because I want people to know why they should listen to you. And I don't think we're going to skip past that race of champions thing because it's, it's been enough time now that it's settled in your brain that magnificent weekend. Uh, but first of all, we're going to talk about a bit of breaking news. What do you reckon, Matt? Is it time to talk about the big breaking story of the week? Yeah, why not? Big Dirty News. Now, if you notice the people watching on the video, Brad's wheel turning, he has been known to do laps of the Nürburgring whilst, you know, the news and stuff is going on. But there's a lot of F1 news. Why has there been so much F1 news this winter? Uh, A big one, though, Matt, Uh, a change at the very top of the Ferrari pit wall. That's right. Everybody's friend, um, Benato, who has been sort of the one of the two main protagonists at the Ferrari ongoing saga of drama that has kept us all entertained, has been, I guess, promoted, for lack of a better word. And we are saying officially goodbye to Mauricio Arriva Bene, who on the way out the door has been pretty much beaten thoroughly about the head and shoulders by every single journalist that's written off his tenure at the Scuderia. And I have to say, based on what they have written, this is probably not the best news Mercedes could have had as they ramp themselves up for winter testing. I I agree. I think perhaps Maurizio was what Ferrari needed when he first came in. Uh, But in terms of long-term leadership, definitely there there aren't too many good things to take away from his uh, quite short tenure at Ferrari. They've really been racking through these team principles, haven't they? Since Domenicali left, we've had uh, uh, Mattiacci and Arriva Bennett and now um, Binotto as well. I may even be missing uh, someone out there as well, I feel like, but they've certainly been racking through them over the past couple of years. So uh, hopefully Binotto is going to be a a long-term investment as a team principal. Yeah, I would think that, that he would be. And in particular, his his approach when he because this all came about because he went to Marchionne and basically said the way the team is being run, people are afraid to be creative and take chances and improve things. And he went to him. Uh, I don't know if you went to him directly with the presentation, but he has a whole philosophy of how to get the best out of people. And it's pretty much diametrically opposed to what we now are hearing now that Ariva Bene is no longer going to be in the paddock as to what's how he's been running the team. Arriva Bene was described as kind of the the polar opposite of Toto Wolf. He ruled with an iron fist uh, and led with fear. And that is not the way to run uh, any kind of team, let alone a Formula One team. And what Noto is proposing is so much uh, more interchangeable, exchangeable between staff members. That is fine for running a podcast empire, but not a Formula One team. So Matt, we've been talking and speculating that we feel like maybe Mercedes have got a bit more of a huggy, bit of a loving, a bit of a, hey, let's analyse what went wrong. Hey, hey, guy, it's okay. You did the best you could. Let's talk about why that went wrong. And let's hug it out, and then let's push forward together. Whereas, you know, in Ferrari, they would simply take out the lame pony and and send it to the glue factory. Uh, Yeah, this is exactly the case. And in fact... um... 
pretty much if you were beneath Ariva Benet, you would simply be yelled at. And if you were above him, you would be told that everything is brilliant. So, so it was the worst of both worlds because Ferrari had gotten itself to a point, despite that, where at least technically the car they created was capable of race wins and capable of challenging Mercedes. But what they didn't have was the culture to close that last bit of gap. And apparently this is something that affected Vettel in the team as well. If you look at you know why Ferrari didn't win the 2018 World Championship, there there are v- many links you can like make back to Vettel. <clears throat> oh, sorry. No, not just Vettel because technically the car was solid. Binotto, having been promoted just from you know being the head of the engine department to then being technical director, so being responsible for the whole car, and in Ferrari instead of just having two separate departments that then somehow merged together at the at the end and made a weird mismatch. I mean, remember how awful that car was back in 2014, chassis wise and engine wise and aero wise uh, for it to come together to, to merge into a much better functioning synonymous department of creating one product rather than merging two at the end of it is why Ferrari suddenly came on strong in these last um, couple of years. And then the decisions that Arriva Bene was making uh, some of the flashpoints, you know, in particular was handling the uh, the team orders scenarios in, in Germany and Italy and uh, the strategic decision during uh, the Japanese Grand Prix qualifying session, going out on intermediates on a dry track. Um, all, all those kind of things that you can link back to him are things that, that really uh, failed them. There are obviously other things in there as well, but, uh, uh, you know, rem- removing that element and putting somebody like Binotto in charge is going to be a really, really good thing. Because, like I said, it's not the first time he's been, you know, pushed up and and really, really delivered. Trumpets. Is there anything we can read into the relationship between Sebastian Vettel and Arriba Vene? Uh, and might that change? Because I don't keep up with the news as much as as you do, but the sense was that there was some friction there. Yeah, I think there was a lot of friction there. And um, I, I can remember Riva Bene saying that Vettel should stop trying to run the team. So That's it. Clearly, clearly there were some differences of opinion. He was trying to, like, you know, do the strategy and everything from the cockpit. And in fact, there was quite a lot of pundits saying, why is Sebastian Vettel trying to manage the team from the cockpit? And things like that, if you've got a um, an alpha male uh, in charge, that doesn't always sit well because you sit there and go, Oh, Vettel thinks he's running it from the cockpit, does he? Right, I'll show him a thing or two. Uh, so, just go around the room. Do we think then, let's say that the the technical aspects remain on a kind of similar trajectory as 2018, all we're changing really is Ariba Vene for Bonotto. In fact, should we just say, let's rerun the 2018 season with this managerial change, Chris. Does that make a difference to the outcome? I think it does, because I don't think somebody like uh, Binotto would end up uh, approving the uh, the upgrades. That, remember, the big upgrade package actually made the car slower. Um, now, there's obviously you know issues in the system there, not just Arriva Bene. But of course, he's the one who gets the final say on everything. Um, so I think the championship would have played out quite differently with Binotto um, in charge. It's, it's strange to think how uh, one personnel change could have you know changed the whole face of the the championship but uh it's it's certainly possible it's a key change 
A good old grumble with spanners. I interrupt this podcast to announce that Mist Apex is having another cart day and we want you to come and join us. We will be karting at Rye House Cart Raceway on the 20th of April. That's Easter Saturday. We're going to be doing a live recording around 11am. That's open to anyone who wants to come along and watch. And then at 1pm, we're going to have our safety brief and by 2pm we'll be on track for three heats and a final each. Everyone had a great time with the Heat format on the last event. I asked everyone, and not one person said they wanted to go back to a longer race format. So we'll be jumping in for heats, and then you get to race in one of three finals, depending on how many points you accumulated. We've kept the price the same as we have for the last couple of events. So it'll be £79 for an afternoon of racing at one of the premier tracks in the country. The facility is family-friendly for an additional cost. There's a soft play centre, trampolines, bouncy castles, even a cadet racing track there as well. But I wouldn't want anyone to be put off by coming alone either. I would say about half the people who turned up just turned up on their own. You don't need to bring your friends with you. Your friends will be there waiting for you. Everyone there is into karting, into Formula One, and hopefully into Mist Apex as well. I've opened up as many spaces as I can, and there's going to be 51 driver spots. However, before I've even announced this, I've got 30 penciled in. So I suggest you get in quick to at least let me know about your interest. If you leave me a £30 deposit, I will super, super lock down your place. But you're also more than welcome to pay the full balance, or just let me know your interest, and that will at least guarantee that when there are spaces, you're one of the people I'll harass. It's going to be a really fun time. I hope you'll come down, watch us do our map thing live, and then come and do some racing with us. And don't be afraid about the standard either. There's some really good guys, but there is some utter dross at the back of the grid as well. You will be hard pushed to be last. In fact, I'd say you'd have to work very hard to be last. So come on down, come and meet myself, Van Jean, Bradley Philpot, Chris Stevens, and more for the Missed Apex karting event. Email me at spannersready at gmail.com or private message me on Twitter or Facebook for more details. That's Rye House, 20th of April, £79, cart fun goodness. All right, back to Masterclass. A good old grumble with spanners. Bradley Philpot, let's get back to you. You're going to teach us to drive, but we can't go too far without asking you about, you know, your moment on telly and everything. Where, how on earth, how on earth did you end up turning a wheel against the likes of Sebastian Vettel in the race of champions? Because no offence to you, but as far as I'm aware, you are, are, are not a champion in a World Series. How, how did you sneak in? Did, is this like the time that you pretended to be a Renault driver? Um, no, that was Jordan driver, actually. But um, they were yellow, weren't they? Um, I can't remember the, the very initial thing that, that got me onto that whole race of champions um, steamroller. But... I think I, I think it must have been a a competition that was made public in some way. Maybe they advertised it on Facebook, and I you basically had to make a short video um, saying, kind of showing your career and and why you sh- think you should be a wild card at the race of champions. And the plan was that if you if you eventually won, if your video was judged to get in the top ten, and then out of those top ten videos, you were voted the top one. And oh, sorry, one of the top two, and then out of the top two, you won the head-to-head shootout. You get to race in the, wow. the skills challenge element of the race of champions. So uh, it was kind of like the sideshow, um, and that all went really well. I, I made a little video. I managed to get the most public votes, which was I think it was like fifty thousand. It was something crazy. I worked like I worked my um, I worked my um, behind. I'm off. Trying to think of a behind. That's a <laughs> that's a safer work a safer work word. I worked that off. 
to try and get as many votes as possible and then got through to the the final, won the head-to-head shootout. So that's that's where that all came about. But then um, Jorge Lorenzo, um, who I believe is, I think he rides motorbikes. I don't really know much about them. No, but they're he not hurt himself at a party or something. So I got his spot in the main race of champions. So that's that was just very lucky, basically. Uh, have you got any great takeaways from that? Because that is back in a time where there was a lot of Formula One drivers in there of course now they're all a little bit you know i think a bit nervous after pascal Verline hurt himself you don't see them there so much but at that time i mean you had daniel ricciardo there jensen button uh all sorts all sorts of characters david coulthard racing a lot and of course sebastian vettel yeah so takeaways would be uh most of the guys are really nice and down to earth um vettel wasn't really um and uh, I'm sure it's just because I was some randomer in the changing room that he had no idea who I was. But um, yeah, he wasn't he wasn't like the most friendly, a bit frosty, um, but also super serious about what he was doing. He won the main event and not the skills challenge. I beat him in that famously. You might have seen the pictures, um, but in the, um, in the main event, he won um, and he he was just so methodical about his preparation. He was the only driver out of everyone that was out like walking the track in the morning, like looking at the tarmac and just really, really taking it seriously. I'd say the only driver except for me, obviously I was doing all that too because I really, really cared. Should have just winged it. All right, let's get back to a bit of driving. So we started touching upon trail braking. Now, I have to admit to you that a lot of the time, even though I have explored trail braking, I'm very binary. Like a lot of people, when they jump in a sim or a go-kart, I will get to the corner and I will apply the brake pretty much in a straight line because once you start turning and braking, things get real tricky. Uh, And then when I get to the point where I think that I can get away with stamping on the throttle again, that's when I get back on it. So I'm pretty much braking in a straight line, looking for the apex, thinking I'm probably not going too fast now so I can get back on it and go around. And if you can do that smoothly enough, you can kind of, you know, you get around. Obviously, that's not the fastest way to get around. Can you tell me what trail braking is? And it, I mean, it's it's a it's not something you do every corner, but it is something that you have to do to be fast. Yeah, finally we get into the meaty stuff. This is what I've been looking forward to. Um, so trail braking is basically extending the braking zone into a corner, quite simply. And there's a, a a number of different ways to do it. But first of all, the reason you would do that, it might sound completely obvious, or it might not. The further you can extend your braking zone into the corner the longer you're on the throttle for basically you know you're you can break later um if you if you imagine a corner has a point at which you have to be going the minimum speed so say for example if we just take a, a random corner the minimum speed you need to um get down to in order to stay on the racing line um and make the apex is for example 30 miles per hour but it's not 30 miles per hour at the corner entry and it's not 30 miles per hour halfway into the entry it's only at that one specific point so there's no point slowing down to that minimum speed any earlier than you absolutely have to and so you're going to trail the brakes in in order to maintain the highest possible speed until right at the moment where you need to achieve that minimum speed um, you're right though you don't have to do it on every corner because some corners as you find a lot with the mazda you're racing on iRacing, some corners you actually want to get on the power before the apex so, uh, for example, a more open 
quick corner, you might not break at all. You know, you might just have a lift in order to achieve the speed you need to to get through a corner. But a lot of corners, you do need to trail the brakes. And I'm going to try and use a couple of examples uh, from Formula One so people can understand the type of place where you'd be doing this. Okay, yeah. Let's let's hear your examples first then. So the first one that sprung to mind um, is the first couple of corners at Suzuka. So you've got the downhill straights, like the, the main start-finish straight, and then the first corner kind of kinks to the right, and then it goes tighter to the right. Um, and it's at some point in that second kink there where you need to get down to your, your lowest speed. And the technique that you do, the technique you'd employ as you drive into that corner is you probably stay on the power actually initially uh, into the first part because it's quite a gentle corner. And then you start braking and you're trail braking now without any choice because you're already in the corner and you've only just started braking in the corner. And then you'll maintain some pressure all the way until the car's slowed right down to the speed you want to achieve. And at that point, you're probably just about to get back on the power. So that that's trailing the brakes into that corner. Sorry, Spanish, you have a question? I just want to check, because I'm looking, there's other blank faces on the panel as well, that I'm getting this trail braking thing right, is that, so to not trail brake would just be to brake as hard as I can, obviously we're trying without locking it, and then when I think I've slowed down In enough, lift off and then and then put the accelerator on. The trail braking means that, uh, so I will, I will brake as hard as I can, but the part where i turn into the corner and the part where i'm still on the brake will intersect now i'm not i'm not still yes. i'm still i'm not still flat on the brake as i'm starting to turn i kind of have to somehow magically know how much brake pressure to release as i'm giving it a little bit of steering lock yeah this is perfect so actually uh, thanks very much for for leading me into this banners because this allows us to talk about exactly what you're doing with the brakes you're right you approach most corners down a straight and you break at the hardest you possibly can in a straight line. Um, that way the weight is uniform across both front tires. Um, so both tires are doing the same amount of work and you can break as hard as possible without locking up. So the maximum possible pressure you can apply um, just before you actually lock those front tires. And if you're going in a dead straight line, they'll typically lock up together if they're going to. Um, so you'll break as hard as you can without locking up those front tires. But then if you're trailing the brakes, you're actually moving the weight to one side as you turn in. So you can't get away with pressing the pedal as hard at that point. Sorry, Spanish, carry on. So that's why you say to kids, or actually when you do the briefing down at a go-kart track, that's why they always say to you, break in a straight line. It, that is to do with you know the brakes and it, and it being even. So if I break in a straight line, there's no risk of, of locking it, or there's less risk of locking it because the, the forces are even. Yeah, you've got, there's less chance you're going to, I mean, a go-kart's another thing. So maybe we'll talk about that specifically later, but on any, any kind of track driving, whether it's on the simulator or whether it's um, on, on a track day or someone training to be a race driver in, a, in an old Formula Renault or something, you'll tell them break in a straight line to begin with, to keep it simple. But that doesn't mean that breaking in a straight line is the fastest way to do it all the time. But certainly your maximum pressure on the brake generally comes in a straight line. The only time where that wouldn't be the case is something like my Suzuka example, where the braking zone doesn't start until you're already turning. Obviously, in that example, um, you can't do the same amount of brake pressure as you would if the car was in a straight line, because the inside wheel is unweighted and it will lock up more easily. So um, so generally, let's just think of one different example of a corner, um, because this one's a more typical trail braking example. You're going down the Wellington Strait at Silverstone. That's so under the bridge. Under the bridge, exactly. And you're approaching Brooklands. So you've got uh, a kind of long, tightening left-hander as you go past the uh, the BRDC building. 
So that's an example where you very definitely break in a straight line to begin with. But if you were to just come off the brakes at the end of that straight, you'd go into the corner way too fast, unless you've braked super, super early, in which case you're going way too slow. So you'll brake very, very hard on the straight. And then as you begin turning the wheel, at the moment you start turning the wheel, your driving brain has to then modulate. You have to think about, well, hopefully not think about, but you've got to release some pressure on the pedal because you can no longer get away with the same amount of force going through the brakes because you're going to lock the inside wheel. And the slower you get and the more you turn the steering wheel, the more you have to take that into account. There should be this kind of um, subconscious connection between how much steering lock you've got applied and how hard you can be pressing the brake pedal in the same way that you've got this connection when you're accelerating out of a corner, the more steering lock you've got applied, the less you have to be on the throttle. It's kind of an inverse of that. So Ah. once you're on the straight, you can have full throttle. And obviously once you're on the brake, uh, sorry, once you're on the straight and you're in a braking zone, you can have maximum braking force, but the more steering lock you apply, the less braking you can get away with at that point. Does that make sense? Yeah. I have to admit, and I hope I'm not alone here that whenever I've been in a vehicle racing, I just think of the brakes as something to do to slow things down and then prepare for the corner. Actually thinking of the brake pedal as an active act and not a negative of taking that speed away. I mean, Chris, I mean, would that change your attitude having heard that, that you, you think of braking force as a, as an asset that you can use and you have to use less of it as you're turning? Uh, that's, that's a bit of a game changer. It's a great explanation. Mario Andretti said, it is amazing how many drivers, even at the Formula One level, think that the, the brakes are just for slowing down. And, and on this topic, actually, even in a straight line, especially in something like a Formula One car, you have to think about this. Because if you think about, and tell me if I'm going into too much detail here, Spanish, if you think about the braking trace, as in a graph of how much pressure you're applying um, to the brake pedal, When you've got more downforce, the faster you're going, obviously, at the end of the straight, that's where you can get away with the hardest possible braking. Even if you keep the wheel straight, you have to bleed off that pressure as the speed drops and the downforce falls away. It just becomes even more of something to think about as you start also introducing steering lock. Um, That's not so much of an issue in a car without downforce. That really is typically a a single-seater, high-downforce car kind of style where you go maximum brake and then immediately you bleed away on the brakes as the speed drops but you have to kind of have this image in your mind of of how much pressure i can apply um when you're going faster and obviously and then when you start applying steering lock uh, jan roger kvitberg says uh oh, there's no way i got that right uh it says uh, spanners looks kind of confused only kinder stevens uh, when i did sim racing in my sort of teen years we did a uh, formula three series at one point and uh, that was the first time i'd driven quote unquote a car without anti-lock brakes um so to hear the the modulating issue um for the first time i i, I must only have been about like 14 or 15 at the time having only watched it for like a you know a year or, or so so i wasn't you know as much up to date with it but it was i was so confused like why am i spinning and, and locking up so many tires until somebody actually explained you know that without abs you actually have to modulate the brakes etc right uh, in the chat room martin reno is saying a tire has 100 grip it can accelerate or brake or turn with that 100 if you're trying to do two of those things at the same time you have to split that 100 between the two is that an accurate assessment brad yeah that is that's really accurate and then imagine when you start shifting the weight you don't have 100 anymore 
Um, if you say you've got a hundred on in a straight line and then, uh, and so you turn left, that left front tire, for example, no longer has that 100 because it's actually effectively being picked up slightly off the floor. Um, so yeah, you've got a certain amount of grip to play with. You have to, you have to kind of spend that how you see fit. Um, and it's, it's not really intuitive for most people, especially if you're used to driving on the road, because if you think of most times where you're, you know, you're just out in your car going to the shops, you generally don't come up to a, a corner or a junction and apply maximum braking force and then bleed away as you get closer to the corner. You generally will brake gently and then get harder and harder and harder on the pedal as you approach yes. the red light. Yeah. So it's kind of the, the, the inverse of that, which makes it tricky, especially when you throw in a very stiff pedal, which people also aren't used to. Um, I saw in the chat room, someone asked for other examples of corners where you'd use trail braking. Great. To be honest, there's so many. It's the majority of corners, I'd say, or, okay, I'd, I'd have to actually split corners up into what their different types are, but all the time you're using it. Um, the kind of corners where you don't use it are corners which, first of all, don't require braking. So there's some flat out corners. Obviously, there's no trail braking there. So if it's very gentle, you won't use it. Um, quite often, 90 degree corners, you won't do very much trail braking. But even then, there tends to be a slight blend between the end of the braking zone and the beginning of the corner. It's pretty rare to come completely off the brakes and then turn unless the corner is, is uh, you know, a full throttle corner, for example. But go on, Spanish. Well, here's why I often chicken out from doing it. And I have to say, I'm much more comfortable doing this in a go-kart than I am on, on a sim, i.e. extending the period I can accelerate by being on the brakes and turning at the same time. So I'm much more comfortable doing it with that. But, but in a sim or in a cart, if you do that and you get it wrong, you're going to overshoot the corner. So for someone at a very amateur level like me, once I pick my braking point that's late and commit to turning in while braking, if I get that wrong, I'm either going to spin because I'm, I'm going too fast or I'm going to miss the apex and someone's going to fly around the inside of me. Yeah, so if we're talking specifically about carts now, Spanners, did I get that right? You, you were just talking about... Oh, well, I was, just, I was talking in general. It's, it's the okay. gamble I make when I pick my braking point. Yeah, so if it's not carts, then it's just something that you'll get used to over time. And the more the more driving you do, it'll just become something that's natural because without even thinking about it, you'd want to brake later and later. And that kind of braking would just naturally tend to start blending into a corner. And you'd see, oh, I can get away with a bit more speed here. So maybe I can brake later or carry a bit more speed and brake in the corner. But yeah. if, if we briefly talk about go-karts, okay. that will lead me into the kind of the next area here. So you mentioned earlier that, go, that when you brake in a cart, it's a bit more binary. And actually, in a go-kart, you don't tend to really do a whole lot of trail braking. And that's for one really big reason. And that's that the brakes only operate on the rear axle. So in the same way that in a car, if you only had a handbrake to slow you down, you probably wouldn't do a whole lot of trailing that handbrake in. Because when it suddenly locks, when you get a lockup, Unlike in a, in most cars where it's generally the front tire that's going to lock, um, if the rear locks, it's going to snap and you'll lose a lot of time um, and obviously run really wide. Whereas a front lockup tends to just give you a little bit of understeer, which you can quite easily cure by just lifting a little bit off the brakes. So in a go-kart, you do tend to do braking in a straight line, off the brakes and then turn in. But that kind of gets us onto brake bias and because you do see the rear wheels lock in a car, in a Formula One car sometimes. So if we get time, maybe let's touch upon what brake bias is and, and why you'd change that. Uh, okay, then. I'll tell you what, we'll do that. But first of all, let's give uh, Matt and Chris their opportunity to do their newsy-newsy thing. And let's assume it's going to be interesting. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Big Dirty News. I've played a jingle. It must be important. Trumpets, I am obviously aware of any time constraints you might have. And I don't want to leave this show without getting all the news goodness out of you. What's going on in the world of F1 news? Well, we've had some, I'd say, rather bad news for everybody's favorite Mercedes driver, Valtteri Bottas. <laughs> oh, I see what you did there. It's opposite day. Yes, it is. The poor man, he's already been told, as if this isn't enough pressure, that in order to keep his race seat with Ocon sitting on the bench, he needs to match Lewis Hamilton's performance next year. If that's not bad enough, he's just discovered that his main sponsor, Wehuri, I believe I said that incorrectly, um, has pulled the plug on him. And he's now got a 12 million pound hole in his pocket because apparently now F1 is too expensive for them. But on the right side, at least everyone loves his beard. Chris, isn't saying to Bottas, you have to match Hamilton's speed or we're bringing in Ocon, exactly the same as saying, hey, guess what? In 2020, we're bringing in Ocon. Well, it's the minimum you'd expect of him, uh, really. He, he needs more of those races like what he had at the beginning of uh, no, hang on. Season. He's being told to match Lewis Hamilton. There's very few people in F1 history that will be able to do that. Surely they're setting him an impossible task. Why not say you need to close the gap on Lewis Hamilton? Then we're in a really good position in the constructors and Lewis Hamilton is, st is still the world champion. Why say match Lewis Hamilton? Granted, but you've got to give him the same kind of goal as as if you, you would give any, you know, driver. you would expect your drivers to be able to to beat each other. You know, that's what every other team on the grid is saying to their drivers, beat your teammate. And then they say to the teammate, beat your teammate. And it's got to be the same regardless of who it is in, in that team. So <laughs> Sorry, the chat room just said, yeah, Boss is totally fired. <laughs> well, here's the thing. There's the sponsor coming out from underneath him now. It's just all playing into the narrative of Ocon coming in in 2020. And it was still a really long way from 
any of this potentially unfolding. But there does it does seem to be folding in quite nicely for that to eventually happen. I think Bottas he's got a really big uphill you know, struggle ahead of him, but uh, if he can just have a few more races like like Russia, like Baku, like China from last year, where he probably would have and should have won those races, uh, then then he'll be probably sitting pretty. Matt, come on, eighteen people should have won Baku. Yeah, his was particularly ugly, though, that puncture. Otherwise, it was completely his. And yeah, Russia probably was his, too. So he had at least two. Let's let's not forget he lucked into that lead in in Baku that he was then unlucky to lose. Yeah, well, I don't know. Watching watching Verstappen and Ricciardo, I don't know if luck is really... That seemed kind of inevitable to me at some point (laughs) during that race. Nevertheless, to me, the interest... Is is aside from the yeah, it looks like they've set him an impossible task. Is the amount of pressure that they're putting him under to make that happen? I mean, the that to me is the dramatic narrative. His arc this year is going to be extraordinary because he he is up against it. It's it's do or die. I, I would say it's it's not do. It's definitely not do. He's been set an impossible task. Ocon's waiting in the wings. That funding going from beneath him, Chris, is significant because if he wants to stay in Formula One in 2020, I don't believe it's with Mercedes. He is now then sniffing around, not Ferrari, not Red Bull. He's looking at the kind of teams where they're going to go, yeah, we know you're fast, but we do actually need a bit of backing in that race seat as well. No, that's very true. It's it's not so much an issue while he's a Mercedes driver, is it because he or they are not in a spot of financial bother, are they really? Um, yeah, long term, that is something he's going to have to uh, to think about. But then, does anyone really think that Ocon can come straight in and do a better job than Bottas? No, Bottas? not not really. But that's what I'm saying is that they are giving nearly any driver an impossible task. So good luck to Bottas. It's going to be okay, probably. Narrator voice. It wasn't okay. Let's get back to driving okay, though. So there's two topics I want to cover with you, Bradley Phil. But well, we have your expert, expert mind to pick apart here. Firstly, something that seems obvious to you, I'm sure. But a lot of times, Paul DeResta or whoever on the commentary will say, oh, he's, he's snatched uh, the tyre there. He, he's locked up. He has unloaded one tyre or the other. That's not language that comes naturally to uh, a retail manager or a salesman from uh, Stoke. Um, no, it's definitely something, though, that all race drivers or certainly anyone who's um, got any experience race driving would kind of take for granted. Um, so a couple of those you said um, snatched or locked a wheel that I think we probably generally know what that means. Um, it, it means a lockup, but it's just when um, one particular tyre is trying to be slowed by the driver more than uh, more than it's capable of gripping you know it's it, you want to be braking as hard as you can whilst the tires are still rotating so you want to be putting as much pressure into the braking system as possible um, but you don't want to actually stop the tire from turning because at that point it's not slowing you down effectively anymore so uh, it's what everything we've been talking about with the trail braking it's up to the driver to judge how much pressure they can get away with without that happening and they're, they're trying to be as close to snatching an inside wheel as possible without it actually snatching that's that's their aim okay. and when you see a little puff of smoke or a lockup they've been you know they're pretty close to getting it just right 
So when we see they've locked um, one, say, one front wheel, a lot of times on the TV cameras, it looks like they're just breaking straight into the corner. But what we think is happening there is that they're doing this trail braking we've been talking about. They're applying equal brake pressure. I'm, this is a really stupid question. When they press the pedal, uh, both sides of the brakes get the same amount of brake force. Yeah, you have a you have a bias front to rear, but you the driver doesn't set up a bias left to right or anything like that. Otherwise, the car would pull horribly to one side under braking. Right. So yeah, you're right. Yeah. Both both tires are you know both axles are getting equal um, amounts uh, of braking force. Okay, so I'm going to uh, turn I'm going to turn right and I, and I'm braking to turn right. So all my weight is going to the left. So my yeah. right hand wheel has the same amount of braking force as my left hand wheel. But there's less weight on that right-hand wheel, so it's the road is not touching the wheel as much. Uh, therefore, it's easier for the brake to grip it and stop it from spinning, and then it skids along and and, and makes the smoke. Yes, exactly. The friction okay. of the pads on the disc overcomes the friction of the rubber on the tarmac, and it will stop the tire. Exactly, that's it. And okay. A driver doesn't want that to happen for very long because obviously you start yeah. very quickly damaging the tire and getting flat spots. So you're trying to get close to that without it actually happening. That's cool. So actually, that's made it a lot easier for me. All he's doing is braking too much for the amount he's trying to turn, and that's all that locking a, a front right tire is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, that's, that's unpacked. Uh, but little. you do sometimes see rear locks as well, don't you? And that's a lot more rare, but you do occasionally see a puff from the rear. Um, and you do sometimes see the rear of the car snap. Um, so as well, oh, Chris has a question before I go on to that. Would it be incredibly uh, rude of me at this point to bring up McLaren's left right braking system they had in the late 90s? Or is that just going to complicate things far, <laughs> far too much? Firstly, I know nothing about that. And secondly, I also complicate it. Um, but I can probably have a half guess. It it would be beneficial if you had a system that would allow you to, uh, if you had enough brain power or electronic um, trickery to allow a car to adjust corner to corner. I mean, that's kind of what ESP does when, uh, you know, the electronic stability program on your road car, when you, um, when you get into uh, a moment of understeer, for example, so you go into a corner too fast on a slippery road, so you turn right and the car wants to understeer straight on, your car very cleverly will break the right-hand tires only um, or um, it will give them more of a bias and that will help drag you around in the same way that kind of touching a shopping trolley tire on one side will drag it in that direction. Your car cleverly does that. So maybe... Um, Maybe McLaren has something that the driver could manually do like that, but it take a lot of brain power. So let's um, briefly touch on something we, we started to talk about, actually, with Alex Brundle last week, who who was talking about, you know, having to technically fiddle with a lot of the car as you're going around. You see the drivers kind of awkwardly trying to fiddle with this little kind of thing in a gloved hand. It never it never looks quite quite neat does it where they're trying to try to what they're doing is they're switching the brake bias and you hear them on the thing going oh more forward more rear why why are they doing that okay so um you really want when you're braking you really want to um get the most stopping power out of all four tires so you you want to be able to you don't want to waste any of the grip that one of those tires can give you um but at the same time, when you brake, the weight moves to the front. You know, you have this transfer yeah. of weight to the front. So the bias, the amount of braking that either the front or the rear axle are going to do is always biased towards the front. In, in a stiffer car, 
that is like a Formula One car is obviously very stiff. You tend to have a smaller gap between the front and the rear bias because there is less weight transfer. You know, the nose of the car doesn't dive onto the front wheels um, like it does in a softer car. So you have less bias, more of a 50-50 split in a Formula One car. But essentially what you don't want to do is have a, a, a bias between the front and the rear where you brake and the front tires lock easily and the rears are quite a long way from locking because you've effectively wasted some of the potential stopping power from the rear axle. So you want to have it set so that when you apply maximum braking force, the front and the rear wheels would nearly lock at exactly the same time if you were to lock them. But with a slight bias towards the front because having rear tires snatch on you will cause you more of an issue than we kind of touched upon it earlier, give yeah. you more of an issue than locking a front uh, and the brake bias. So the, the car will be set pretty well before the driver leaves the pit lane, but then they fine tune it because they can fill in the car. I brake, you know, you leave the pits at Interlagos, you get down to that first left hander at the end of the straight after the pits, you brake really hard for the first time and all of a sudden you get a snap of oversteer, you know, okay, we're slightly too far to the rear. Immediately the driver would click a couple of clicks towards the front. Uh, um, and then at the next braking zone, they'd see, do I have more stability? Is the rear still snatching? If it is, obviously you keep moving it forward until you get to a point where it's neutral or slightly biased towards the front locking up first. So I asked the chat room, you know, is this too obvious or is this actually useful information? Because I just wanted to double check on your behalf, Brad. And uh, New European says this is actually very informative. Master Noob also agrees that it is, as does Merkman. Now, when we talk about uh, switching the bias, are we actually just changing the hydraulic pressure that goes to the front and goes to the back? Well, in a Formula One car, it's a bit more complicated than that, isn't it? Because some of the braking isn't actually done by the brakes themselves. It's oh, done course, by yeah. the electronic systems. Yeah. Um, but it, the effect it has is the same. Um, mm. But in, in most cars, yeah, you are. You're, you're literally changing how much hydraulic pressure is going to the front or to the rear. Um, and, and you can do that. I mean, I've got my steering wheel in front of me right here with a little brake bias switch. So I don't tend to change it very often when I'm sim racing. Um, once I've got it set in practice, I tend to leave it. But you certainly could, if you were that way inclined, make small adjustments corner to corner based upon um, you know, based upon what the car happens to be doing in that situation. Because, you know, braking for each corner is going to be slightly different. As we spoke about earlier, some corners you're trailing the brakes in more, some you're braking just in a straight line, etc. Do you know what I like about this? This is like... You know, in football, you, you can see the guy, you know, slipping or he, he slices it. You can see it's come off the wrong part of his boot. And now with this information, when we're watching the races and we see puffs of smoke, it's a big, big clue what's going on. You know, we can apply this knowledge quite simply. So if, if the rear bra- brakes are locking, that means that he could cure that. Hang on by putting more rear brake bias. No, that would make it no, worse. No, the opposite. That would make it worse. Okay. But okay, we're getting there. We are getting there though. And we know that if one front wheel um, is, is skidding and producing smoke, then he's probably, you know, over gambled and, and too much brake versus steering lock. It's good to get this knowledge. And I think it, it's worth listening to back. The amount of people, Matt, that have told me that they've listened to Bradley's karting masterclasses three or four times before that information has gone in uh, is, is quite is quite telling. Yeah, and it's one of the advantages of having people who are real professionals in their field come on and talk to us about it, is that the information is useful, and the more you listen to it, the more you really begin to understand it and take it into yourself. And I'm just going to put in a plea, because I know we're running out of time, and I know we don't have time to talk about this. But next time, Bradley... Uh, deigns to uh, grace us with his presence. 
Could we also talk about how the differential plays a part in that? Because that has always been a bit of an area of mystery to me. Yeah, we should definitely keep that as a separate topic, though, I think. Um, but yes, absolutely. It's another area where you can you can change things which aren't obvious from the outside, but really help or hinder your your ability to drive the car as fast as you want it to. Um, can I answer a question from European in the chat room? Um, he asks, can brake bias be pre-programmed in advance as a sequence on the basis of GPS position, which is a really good question because what I was just saying there, where you're talking about changing bias corner to corner, um, that would be a really useful kind of workaround, wouldn't it? Make life easy. But the problem is the grip you have from a set of tires isn't uniform throughout a, a race or even a stint. Um, and so it, it kind of needs to be done live by the driver based on what they're feeling at any given time. There was a similar thing trialed in MotoGP, I think, where the traction control would vary depending on the bike's GPS position. Um, and I think there, there were a couple of issues because if you lost the GPS position, then you'd be a bit screwed and you had riders crashing out all, all the time because they didn't have enough traction control. So um, that's that's one for the maybe pile, perhaps. Yeah, that would be another potential issue with that system. Well, Brad, you know you can come on any time to, to cover these issues. But Chris, uh, the reason motorbikes crash is because they lean over. And if you if you lean to one side or the other, then you fall down. I don't know why it's taken the motorcycle community so long uh, to acknowledge this. Bradley Philpop, I want to ask you one final question. And it's one of these, you know, all the things you wanted to know about racing but were too afraid to ask. You could all turn around and facepalm right now and there could be people thinking I'm even more stupid than they, they already think I am. But I'm not sure I know what carrying the speed means. And it's it's been said so often during commentary, oh yeah, no, you know, he, he's good at carrying the speed. He's carried the speed there. Now, there's two potential meanings. A, it could mean you just keep going really, really fast deep into a corner and you've carried so much speed in there. Or it can mean that you've, you know, done your braking in advance and then you're able to, to keep accelerating through a corner. Please clear this up for me. Okay, so carrying the speed really just refers to not overslowing the car. So as we were talking earlier, probably the first thing we spoke about, where if the apex speed or the minimum speed in a corner is 30 miles per hour you don't want to be doing that speed until right up until the moment where you have to be going that slow um you could equally be going too slow earlier on in the corner than that and carrying the speed just means you've maintained um the maximum achievable speed for as long as possible so how do i know whether it's the sort of corner where i want to get my braking done and uh, be accelerating through it or how do I know where it's the sort of corner where I want to be Lewis Hamilton style stamping, squealing on the brakes uh, before getting on with it? Is there is there a secret to unlock? When I'm approaching a corner, how do I judge how I'm supposed to attack it? So, um, first of all, this kind of leads on to racing lines, which we, we should cover at some point. But um, you can't take a corner in isolation. You can't have a corner on its own, a little picture of it and say, this is this kind of corner, because a corner is affected by what comes before it and what comes after it. And the, um, how you're going to approach that is going to massively be dictated um, by what speed you're doing when you get there and what direction you want to go and how fast when you leave there. Um, so it's not a, a completely clear cut straight answer, but very as a general rule, the more gentle corners, you'll have to do it less. And the more tight, uh, the tighter corners, you're going to have to break more. You know, that's a, a kind of very simplistic way of looking at it. Okay, here's a common scenario. 
uh, for, for a lot of us who go out and do a bit of corporate karting uh, on our work dues or missed apex dues. A lot of outdoor carts have uh, hairpins that lead into each other, have, have a lot of hairpins because I guess that's a, a good way of forcing a go-kart to have to hit the brakes and slow down, especially with the, the outdoor carts. So what you see with a mixed ability grid as we definitely have at Mist Apex, is you see people picking very different places to break. So you pick a lot, see a lot of people uh, breaking in a straight line, as we discussed. You see a lot of people breaking on the apex. You see a lot of people not really breaking enough at all because it's go-karts in it. You just kick the back end out and end up, uh, <laughs> you know, in the grass on the exit. So maybe just a, a, an example like that of a standard hairpin, medium speed, leading into another hairpin a little bit down the road. So what, what question are you actually asking? How you'd approach that particular corner? Well, you, you see a lot of different speed, uh, uh, speed management through those corners. Which one's correct? Well, it, oh God, I'm going to say it, it depends. Okay, it, well, it completely de- whichever way is quickest for that particular corner, um, it, it's going to vary totally depending on exactly what you're driving, um, what speed you are able to achieve. But a real short answer would be the correct way is whichever way um, allows you to get through that corner in the shortest possible period, shortest possible oh, okay. time. Fair enough. It's just, I know it's a real cop out, but it's there's no you can't just say here's a hairpin. This is how you tackle that hairpin because it does depend on a lot of things. Um, and, and really, a big thing is is what comes next. I know I said that a moment ago, but if if there's a very slow corner immediately after this hairpin, then you can afford to go carry loads of speed in and sacrifice your exit by you know, just making up all that time, you know, having your cake early on in the corner. And it doesn't matter that you're going a bit slower on the exit because the next corner is slow anyway. Whereas if you've got a very long straight following that, then the emphasis is going to be a lot more towards um, getting a very clean, fast exit. So you can't barrel on in really quick. And you could even see the exact same picture of a hairpin. And I've actually done this sometimes when um, doing tuition sessions with people, giving them a picture of a hairpin. And it's kind of a trick question, say, saying to them, what's the racing line into here? Draw this with a biro, what racing line you should do here. And when they do it, no matter what they do, <laughs> I then can add on a different corner on the yeah. exit and say, well, but is it, is that the correct one? Now you take into this situation. And that's purely to highlight, just to get people thinking that just because they've learned a, a way to do a particular corner, uh, how to approach a corner, just because this other corner looks the same as that on this other track, it's not necessarily the fastest way to do it so the answer really is it depends so but generally if i've got a long straight at the end of my corner i want to sacrifice a bit of the entry to make sure i'm on the power nice and early and if there's a complex of corners then perhaps the the further corners are more important so i need to sacrifice uh or, or sorry i can afford to be a bit rougher into the corner knowing that there's not too much gas to to apply yeah, you have to you have to decide what you're going to compromise because there's going to be a compromise somewhere. You know, you can get the fastest possible entry, but if you don't make the corner and you go really wide on the exit, you're going to be slow, um, and and you know, vice versa. So, sorry, go on, Matt. Do we have time for a quick question from the chat room, which is actually not going to confuse everybody? Which is, do you have a corner or a corner complex that you find challenging to deal with? And or is there a series of corners in racing in general that you just, well, plain old despise? Hmm. Okay. I mean, it's tricky, but my brain is flicking through the database of all the tracks and all the corners that um, that it knows. had a corner that that he still says he can't always get right. So I think that's kind of what we're asking. Okay. Um, So the answer would be, 
no no corner spring to mind that i that i find particularly challenging because ordinarily if there is something that you find challenging you'll just work at it until until you've got it absolutely nailed there's also um some corners that i really enjoy like certain types of corners and they're kind of the ones that i it's the reason i mentioned them earlier things like brooklyn's at silverstone uh turn one and two at suzuka um corners i, I i'm this isn't really on a braking topic, but I prefer corners that um, you can you can carry lots of speed through. That's that's something we just mentioned earlier. But I also enjoy corners where modulating that amount of brake pressure that we've been talking about and getting that just right. You know, really trailing the brakes up to the apex. I like that kind of corner because you can, as a driver, you can influence um, what's going on for a really long time, um, and you, you can even the just the shift of the weight sorry i'm going into i'm talking for too long but there's just shifting the weight mid corner and the ability to just change the attitude of the car um all the way up to the last possible point i really enjoy that kind of corner so is that something like as a musician sometimes when we talk about like a performance or a thing we have a discussion that the audience wouldn't necessarily have about that same thing so when you're talking with other drivers is that kind of breaking is that sort of finesse something that amongst yourselves is something that makes someone go wow you just really did an amazing thing there drivers don't generally tend to talk to each other about how they're going <laughs> about this kind of thing um i very i can't remember many conversations other than in maybe indoor karting where that's been the case and i'd say that's probably because i don't consider myself you know an expert i'm all right but i'm not as good as the very best guys in the world at indoor karting and so I would sit and talk to them about specifically how they're how they're finding lap time at certain parts of a track. So I guess maybe it maybe it depends on um, how much of an expert you see yourself at a particular thing. But certainly most car racing, I'd rather look at the data than talk to a driver about how they're doing it. I'd rather have a look at the data and see where I can improve that way. Well, certainly to us, Bradley Philpot, you are 100 percent an expert. I guarantee you, audience, that this man is in no way as humble as he comes across on the podcast. He is very aware of his own skills, and we're incredibly lucky to have you on here. And uh, we hope that it's not like the magic circle, where when magicians give away the secrets, they are sort of disbarred and kicked out. But you, you're giving away a lot of the driver secrets. Hopefully, you keep some in reserve. Where can people go to keep up with your your videos? You do YouTube videos, and uh, and of course, you do uh, a karting championship and some racing of your own. I'm going to tell you that, but before I do, I just have to say this one thing because I forgot to say it the last time I was on here. Um, Joshua Stewart is a driver on iRacing who is also a listener to Mr. Apex podcast. And he gave me a setup um, a little while ago in a Formula Renault that helped me immensely. And I promised him I'd give him a shout out on Mr. Apex <laughs> in exchange for that. And I completely forgot the last time I was on. So Joshua Stewart, uh, thank you very much for your setup. You helped me immensely. Um, yes, so people can find me um, on Twitter at Bradley Philpot. Um, you can search my YouTube channel. Um, just type in Bradley Philpot or um, type in Brad Dude 2K. Um, and just also search on Facebook. I'm there as well. Um, and I'm just going to quickly plug the British Rental Car Championship, which happens next weekend. Uh, say, uh, sorry, not the weekend that's coming up there. So it's on the 18th to the 20th of uh, January. Spanners will be there after his BBC commitments are completed. Um, and there'll be lots of karting action on the British Rental Kart Championship YouTube channel. So maybe subscribe to that too. And thanks for having me. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it, Brad, because I want to make up for last year when I'd done very little karting commentary. And uh, I was just putting the microphone in people's faces and go, yep, 
I, you seem to have not crashed, so happy with that or not? And then uh, I didn't know what was going on with the pit stops, so someone would ask me a question and I'd go, yeah, I think that was terrible or um, it was great and just completely guess. I think I have some some core knowledge of, of karting this year that I'll be able to apply, Brad. Yeah, I'm sure a whole year of, <laughs> of doing it yourself and also having already met most of these guys um, in the past, you'll be absolutely fine. And you'll actually be able to hear what our main commentator is saying this time, which will make your life a lot easier. It will do. Uh, Chris Stevens, thank you for being very patient this week. You helped us out um, yesterday, dropping in at the last minute. We did a great interview with a lad that saved Donington Park in 2010 or led the campaign to attempt to do so anyway. We'll hear from that next week. But Chris, you're about to get on an airplane. Yeah, I am in three that less than three hours uh, now. I have to leave for uh, for the airport to go to Marrakesh for the Formula E, uh, and of course that means me and Matt have been doing some preview work over at E Radio Show, which we just put out today. So go and check that out, uh, and follow me on Twitter at cstevens underscore journal for all the latest from the Formula E paddock. And trumpets, you've just uploaded that E Radio Show. Oh, well, you can plug stuff too if you want. Yes, well, you know, come look for me on Twitter at MattPT55. And as far as other things, well, you know, I'm always trying to sell a few extra books for the old wife so I can afford the extra trips over to England. So you check her out at Amanda Weaver at A Weaver Writes on Twitter. And if you have someone who would enjoy that sort of thing, please buy them lots of copies. Yeah, that's right, everyone. Check out Matt's wife on the Internet. You can, of course, follow the show at MissedApexF1 or you can follow me at Spanners Ready. Join us next week, where I believe we're going to be talking to Matthew Carter. I think that's what we've got lined up. That's always a treat. But wherever we see you again, until next time, remember that wounds heal. Oh, you missed the apex. That is not the outro. That is my son. Let's play that again. Oh, no. You missed the apex. Oh, I missed that bumper. Remember that. Wounds heal. Chicks dig scars and glory lasts forever. This is now the outro of Missed Apex Podcast. See you next week. Someone reminded me that we used to have a bumper of my son going, oh no, you hit your buddy. And in fact, someone had said that they liked the show and they liked it so much, they started listening from the beginning of 2016. And I was like, oh no, tell you what, Keep all that information to yourself because I am certain that I've said things that are the complete opposite of what I'm saying now. And do you know what I used to do back in 2016, Matt, that I so rarely do now? Comment of the week. Comment of the week. Oh, no, I've got a bumper for that. Comment of the week. This is the part of the show where I ask Matt to pick three candidates and then we invite either the panel or our subject matter expert to choose a winner matt will then go on to read 17 comments and then we'll get matt to uh to pass and defer over to bradley philpot to choose the winner of comment of the week two rumpets all right we will start off with phoenix 2k1 he referring to botas should have a tash then we could have motas i like that yes everyone petition botas now just so we can do that Right. Uh, with regards to, I believe, you and Chris in a simulator, Chris is faster than Stroll on a simulator, mind you. Well, no, because that would make him faster than Ocon, because as we now know, Lance Stroll is the world's fastest ever simulator driver. 
And along those same lines, uh, sounds like a Ferrari team message. Chris is quicker than you, Spanners. Please confirm. Oh, my! it was one time when we had like eight laps. Uh, right. Stevens, I would never choose willingly to invite you to my house. But come here. Come to the sheds. We'll record a show and we'll, we'll see who goes faster. In fact, I've got some VR here as well. Oh, nice. <laughs> uh, that's a, a listener donation. Uh, shout out actually to, to Sam Watley for, uh, sending over his DK2 Oculus developer kit. VR iRacing is something to behold. Great sim racer as well, Sam Watley. Shame he got taken out by Chris Danes in that last race. <laughs> and, and, and as far as you know, may have already been taken out in the iRace that is happening as this episode is released. Uh, <laughs> so Bradley, do you have a favorite comment of that batch? Well, I, I haven't seen Bottas with a beard. Can I throw in an extra one as well? Go for it. Yeah, earlier. of course you can. When, when we might have been potentially having connection issues that no one will know about because you're going to produce this so brilliantly. Sigh. Someone said GP2 connection, GP2 connection, <laughs> which made me laugh. I can't remember who it was and I can't find it, but no, it's gone. You, you choose, Matt. Go for it. I live well, it. I done reading, so you do not want to throw back to me at this point. Oh, sorry. Well, Spanners asked me to choose between yours. so I assumed you, he'd finished because I asked him to read out three and he'd read out three. All right, let's hear the remaining 14 candidates. There's only three more to go. What? Three? Driver Zero makes it sound as though Philpot is contagious. By oh, yeah. Patient Zero. I didn't think of it like that. All I meant was when it comes to driver experts on Missed Apex podcast, Bradley Philpot is the alpha and the omega. I should have said alpha driver, shouldn't I? Charles Ford personally cannot wait to see the lane system applied to the Charlotte Oval Track section. Oh, it's going to be carnage. Uh, but yeah, like I said, I'm a new convert to oval racing. And then the last one is we go back to Phoenix 2K1, Bradley Philpot approved by Billy's. <laughs> and Billy being a, what I feel is a hate word towards less able drivers such as myself. Go on then, Trumpets. Let's have a winner. It's a hate word. Oh, it's up to me. I thought Brad was going to give the final I word. don't think he's paid enough attention. Oh, well, no, no, I have approved by Billy. It has to win. It's, I don't hear the word Billy enough in my, in my new job. So, um, yeah, I was approved by Billy's because that's a factual statement. Let's do it. Comment of the week. Well done, fella. Right, well, I don't know. We might get censored by iTunes for using that hate word. Okay, see you later, guys. Thank you very much. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.